I'm Bill Bubert, retired Army officer and a regular warfare practitioner and scholar. Welcome to Chasing Ghosts and a Regular Warfare Podcast, the show that examines the mythos, lost history, bad thinking, martial malpractice, and government incompetence that informs so much of a regular warfare. I want to peek behind the curtain at the vast machinery and briar patch politics of insurgency and counterinsurgency and everything in between. Now, let's go ghost hunting together. This is Bill, and welcome to episode 23 of Chasing Ghosts in a Regular Warfare podcast. This episode is entitled Afghanistan, the Soviet debacle from 1978 to 1989. And what we're going to discuss today is what was the Russian and Soviet experience and the Mujahideen experience of all the splintered and sometimes entirely discontinuous efforts by guerrillas north to south, east to west, in what's known as Afghanistan. Having served two years in that country myself, and having experienced up close and personal the Afghan culture, and of course after a 10-year interregnum after the Soviet defeat in 1989, the Americans decide, along with their allies, to give it a try and see what they can do to whip the Afghan state into shape and take it out of its normal developing world and third world status and bring it to something else. Of course, this being August 2023, a mere two years ago, the ignominious withdrawal by the Americans out of Afghanistan in a rather hasty and ill-conceived fashion took place. And as they say, the rest is history. The Soviet Union had a number of interests when it came to Afghanistan to include securing a country that would allow them to secure a pipeline for the intermediate and long-term aspirations, along with the possibilities of getting that much closer to a warm water port, along with the fact that as a buffer country along what was then the Soviet underbelly with the Stan brothers to have yet another buffer zone to the south. Since 1947, Afghanistan had been under the influence of the USSR, and they received large amounts of aid, economic assistance, military equipment, training, hardware from the Soviet Union. Economic assistance and aid had been provided to Afghanistan as early as 1919. Their interest was piqued, of course, with the third Anglo-Afghan war that kicked off in 1919, and a desire to kick the British in the teeth for what had happened from 1918 to 1919 and trying to crush the Red Revolution in its cradle by the UK and its allies. Soviet-Afghan military cooperation began on a regular basis in 1956. Further agreements matured in the 1970s, and the USSR sent advisors and specialists. And, of course, the Soviets also had interest in the energy resources of Afghanistan, including oil and natural gas exploration from the 50s and 60s. And if I recall, it was 1968 onwards that the USSR began to import Afghan gas into the USSR. Surprisingly enough for an Islamist society, communism was no stranger to the political tapestry of Afghanistan. By 1978, the Taraki government initiated a series of reforms, including a radical modernization of the traditional Islamic civil law, 
especially marriage law, aimed at uprooting feudalism, end of quote, in Afghan society. And the government brooked no opposition to the reforms, much like the communists are wont to do, and responded with violence to unrest. So between April 1978 and the Soviet intervention of December 1979, thousands of prisoners, perhaps as many as 27,000, were executed at the notorious pul i prison, including many village mullahs and headmen. Other members of the traditional elite, the religious establishment and the intelligentsia, fled the country. So large parts of the country went into open rebellion. And then, of course, we have the rather brilliant airborne intervention in 1979, December 1979, by the Soviets, where they uh, take the country by storm, quite literally. And they called on the, uh, the Amin government, having secured a treaty in December 1978 that allowed them to call on Soviet forces, repeatedly requested the introduction of troops in Afghanistan in the spring and summer of 1979, They requested these Soviet troops to provide security and to assist in the fight against the Mujahideen. After the killing of Soviet technicians in Herat by rioting mobs, the Soviet government sold several Mi-24 helicopters to the Afghan military and increased the number of military advisors in the country to 3,000. On 14 April 1979, the Afghan government requested that the USSR send 15 to 20 helicopters with their crews to Afghanistan And on 16 June, the Soviet government responded and sent a detachment of tanks, bimps, and crews to guard the government in Kabul and to secure the Bagram and Shindand air bases. And of course, it goes on. The destabilization continues to increase. One of the best books I've I've read that talks about this interim period before 1979 in December when you have Soviet forces actual entering the country and taking it over Larry P. Goodson's book, Afghanistan's Endless War, State Failure, Regional Politics, and the Rise of the Taliban. He gives a terrific, pricey, and abstract of what happened that led up to December 1979 when there was an actual Soviet invasion and attempted takeover of the country. It is October 1979 when the Soviets sort of initiate a palace coup and put various forces on standby. What happens is the Afghan armed forces were asked to undergo maintenance cycles for their tanks and other crucial equipment. And meanwhile, telecommunications links to areas outside of Kabul were severed, isolating the capital. The Soviet 40th Army launched its initial incursion into Afghanistan on 25 December under the pretext of extending international aid to its puppet Democratic Republic of Afghanistan. Subsequently, on December 27th, Soviet troops arrived at Kabul airport, causing a stir among the city's residents. Simultaneously, Amin moved the offices of the general secretary to the Tajbeg palace, believing this location to be more secure from possible threats. And of course, on 27 December 1979, 700 Soviet troops dressed in Afghan uniforms, instead, including uh, KGB and GRU. GRU is the military intelligence organization in in the Soviet Union. From Alpha Group and Zenith Group occupied major government military media media buildings in Kabul, including their primary target, the Tajbeg Palace. Operation began in 1900 when the KGB-led Soviet Zenith Group destroyed Kabul's communications hub, paralyzing Afghan military command. In 1915, the assault on Tajbeg Palace began as planned. General Secretary... Havizullah Amin was assassinated. 
Simultaneously, other key buildings were occupied, and the operation was fully complete in no later than 48 hours by 28 December 1979. And now the Russian occupation of Afghanistan started with a bang, and we all know it would eventually end with a whimper. I had mentioned before that I spent two years in the country, in Kabul and other environs to include near the Uzbeki border. What I discovered is that there's this curious notion that the West has that a capital city rules over its entire countryside. In this case, outside of Kabul, Afghanistan doesn't exist as a singular country. The place is strewn with warlords, high flyers, local clan chieftains, uh, any number of religious emissaries who own chunks and parcels of land by the hundreds throughout Afghanistan. And they consider Kabul to be at, at the least a nuisance and at the most a threat. This is something that the Russians never seem to cop an understanding of. This is the country that bested Alexander the Great. It bested all three attempts by the, by the British to secure the territory. It since, by the conclusion of this podcast, if you didn't know, but you can read the title, the Russians didn't win Afghanistan. A little over a decade after the Russians leave, the Americans find themselves embroiled in the empire killer known as Afghanistan. And as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, we are two years out from the ignominious August withdrawal from Afghanistan and all the political fallout that has occurred as a result of that, with the Taliban in the catbird seat once again reinstated after a 20-year interregnum since they ruled in the 1990s. The Russians being Russians and being communists made a real mess out of Afghanistan. It appears in some quarters, though, that they didn't make the mess out of Afghanistan that the Americans and the Allies eventually did because of reports that you'll see on occasion where they almost wax poetic about the good old days of the Russian occupation versus that of the American and Allied occupation. Now, as I mentioned earlier about Afghanistan being a rather fractious and contentious illusion of a country that is actually ruled and governed by hundreds of micropolities that hold Kabul in the lowest esteem and an even lower obedience, one would find that it's simply clans, blood, relationships, coalitions, family, tribe, religion, and large and numerous local conflicts that have been going on for generations, if not hundreds of years. I mean, this country is one that is so fractious and contentious, it appears that no invader is ever able to make the best of it, or, in this case, best the Afghan countryside. To put this in perspective, Afghanistan is the size of both France and England together. It's a large, mountainous country that has a broad degree of deserts, forests, and it's in the foothills of the Himalayas. And there are some very high-altitude mountainous regions. And, of course, mountainous regions. And keep in mind... Bupert's Law of Military Topography, which reads, Mountainous terrain held by riflemen who know what they are about cannot be militarily defeated in detail. 
you could take that to the bank, whether it's the Chechens or the the Zomians in Vietnam, the Montagnards. You can go planet-wide. When you find mountainous areas, they are very hard to conquer. As a matter of fact, there is a Southeast Asian massif called Zomia, as I mentioned a little bit ago, that covers more than 2.5 million square kilometers that has the delicious name of a state-repellent region. Uh, James C. Scott is the one who came up with that notion and explored it. His books are terrific. I highly recommend them. And what we discover is that in these kind of regions, it is very hard for localized control to be wrested by central authorities that step in and attempt to erase the barriers of clan and bloodlines, especially in Islamic cultures as old as Afghanistan is, and find a way to successfully govern in that area and bend them to the knee of the central authority in Kabul. In this case, it didn't happen. In the case of the British, it didn't happen. Alexander the Great may have very well discovered the same thing. And, of course, we know the Americans and the Allies experienced that very same thing after the 10-year interregnum and the invasion in 2001. The Russians in this case not only had a penchant to wrest control and establish total and totalitarian control emanating from Kabul and other satrapies that they would set up throughout the countryside, But from 1981 to 1985, as a result of two years of really running into a lot of roadblocks in the conflict they were conducting, they thought a depopulation of the countryside would be the thing to do. Following the history and uses of concentration camps by the barbed wire empire of England, and later on by the Germans, the Japanese, and other historical 'er ne'er-do-wells to include the Soviets themselves, They thought that they would instantiate, institute, and characterize those very same kinds of depopulation measures to win this conflict. It didn't turn around, and it didn't work out for them very well at all. I recommend a book by Roderick Braithwaite called Afghansi. I'll be quoting from that towards the end of this podcast. He does a terrific job of capturing what happened on the ground with the Soviets. And by the way... The historical record for this in both primary and secondary source documentation for the 10 years there, it is one thing to get the Mujahideen or the Afghan perspective. It's quite another to get an accurate picture of the Russian perspective. The Russian perspective was so tamped down after the 1989 departure of the Soviet forces that over the next 30 years, as a result of some very strange and weird publication guidelines in Russia, Fiction works were the ones in which ex-soldiers could communicate exactly what happened to them through fictional narratives. So you would find fictional narratives and memoirs that were posing as fictional narratives as the go-to of primary and secondary source documentation of the Russian experience in this particular conflict. The ISI, which is the CIA of Pakistan, were the primary benefactors in the early part of the conflict to assist the Mujahideen, both domestic and foreign fighters who flowed in. We all know about Osama bin Laden. This is where he cut his teeth and formed the base, Al-Qaeda. We all know that as a result of the influx of arms and the influx of munitions, supply lines, lines of communication that were established along the Duran line, which is the border in the northwest on Afghanistan 
that conjoins in a rather imaginary fashion Afghanistan with Pakistan, there's been a long-standing relationship of Pakistani intelligence and the Pakistani military providing a balancing act, as it were, between rival armed and political factions in Afghanistan proper in order to stabilize themselves as a regional hegemon. Those of you who have seen that almost fictional representation of Representative Charlie Wilson's efforts to arm the Mujahideen during the 1980s in a movie called Charlie Wilson's War, I recommend it. It has to be taken with a grain of salt, but it's a pretty good characterization of what it's like to try to fund a foreign conflict and what that involves as far as the congressional mischief that goes on. So the Mujahideen, over the course of this conflict, got more and more sophisticated weapons beyond the, the redoubtable Lee Enfields firing the, two, the 303 round and the Kalashnikov models like the AK-47s and the AK-74s. Not only were these provided by Pakistani forces and American forces, but they were also battlefield pickups for the uh, Afghan Mujahideen themselves to include Dishka. 12.7 millimeter machine guns, a, f- a formidable analog to the 50 caliber M2 Browning that is used by the West and other variants thereof. Very heavy machine gun that, that even saw a lot of, well, it brought a lot of grief and saw a lot of service during the time of even the American and Allied occupation from 2001 until two years ago. And, of course, we all know about the story of more and more sophisticated munitions that would come in to include the Milan anti-tank weapons and the Stinger missiles. Now, what's interesting about this is that as a result of that provisioning and training and the logistical line, Soviet equipment losses really started to mount during that time. Now, there have been a number of statistics and numbers out there, but the closest I could find to what it seemed realistic was that as far as aircraft, both fixed and rotary wing, of course, we all know that the MI-24 Hind was a flying tank and was a veritable airborne terror during the first years of the war. The Stinger was used to ameliorate a lot of those. Apparently, out of 340 engagements, they had 296 kills. That's 79%. When it came to Milan and other anti-tank weapons that were employed, and I suspect that there were also small arms and mines employed to do this very thing, IEDs were in their infant stage and did not reach the sophistication that we would see during the Afghan allied and American conflict. Uh, 650 armored vehicles and 340 tanks apparently were destroyed. In this case, let's call destroyed either uh, catastrophic kills or mission kills, in which they were no longer able to do what they were supposed to do, an IFV transporting infantry to the field on a tracked or wheeled vehicle, like a BIMP or a beater, or the tanks and the, uh, the 55s and other such that were deployed there. I always find that the utility of my podcast is twofold. Number one, I'd like to chat and introduce you possibly to a subject that you may not have a deep reading or history or understanding of. And second of all, introduce you to terrific books that are out there that really do the deep dive on these particular subjects and provide you with a background that's much more, that is a much greater depth and width than I can do in a modest podcast. So there's a book out called Afghan Guerrilla Warfare 
by Ali Ahmad Jalali and Lester W. Grau. Mr. Grau militarily is a national treasure. Mr. Grau and I know each other. When I found myself on the ground in Afghanistan in one of my tours, and I was advising the Afghan general staff in Kabul, I reached out to Lester Grau. We had chatted in the past, and I said, hey, can you get me a copy of your book, The Bear Went Over the Mountain, about the Soviet incursion into Afghanistan, and maybe a copy of your other book, The Other Side of the Mountain, about the Mujahideen fight against the Soviet Union, once that incursion had taken place. Can you send me copies in Pashto and Dari? So lo and behold, about a month later, I receive almost a quarter connex full of these books, which is The Bear Went Over the Mountain in Pashto and Derry. Lester, thank you so much. So Lester's written some terrific books to include the ones I just mentioned, but the one on Afghan guerrilla warfare with Jalali is very revealing. And just the table of contents itself. He talks about ambushes. He talks about raids. He talks about shelling attacks. I remember being on Bagram on occasion, and this is 2013 and 15, and they're still having indirect fire incursions every night from mortars or you name it that the Muj were sending across the wall. Attacking a strong point, mine warfare. This mine warfare, of course, would be the early instantiation of the IEDs that would become so prolific across the entire combat zone, blocking enemy lines of communication, uh, siege warfare, defending against raids, fighting Helleborn insertions, defending against a cordon in search, defending base camps, counter ambushes, fighting in an encirclement, urban combat, which the Afghans honed along with the Haqqani network and a number of other organizations in Kabul and the other large urban concentrations in Afghanistan to a higher and higher degree during the conduct of the conflict. By the way, these Mujahideen raids and ambushes, they could take anywhere from a dozen to, let's say, 350 packs that they would employ in the conduct of these raids and ambushes. Some of these raids and ambushes, especially in the more isolated and depopulated terrain, these ambushes would go on for 10 kilometers, where they would make them bounding ambushes. And it's interesting to me, being the deep and wide reader of American history that I am, for instance, that this very same kind of ambuscade and raid characterization took place April 19th and 20th, 1775, when the Redcoats, the British regulars, were trying to make their way back from Lexington and Concord back to Boston and were subject to these kilometers long, these mile-long ambushes that would take place almost in a circular fashion. The same thing was occurring on and on again, especially in the latter half of the conflict from 85 to 89, where the Mujahideen not only found themselves awash and very sophisticated Western weaponry, able to use it through their ISI, Pakistani conduits, and the hundreds of cross-Duran line smuggling routes that had been employed for hundreds of years that they were now using not only to bring in 
equipment, but to bring in foreign fighters to augment the Mujahideen as indigenous fighters. I'd like to quote General Abdul Rahim Wardak. Quote, as a nation, we believe that history repeats itself. What happened in the 19th century to the invading British would also be the fate of the Soviet invaders. Philosophically, the Soviets believe that history is unidirectional, progressive, and does not repeat itself. History did repeat itself, and we did prevail. End of quote. I do think the Soviets discovered that the depopulation measures that they took, the very harsh treatment of men, women, and children around the entire country did nothing, and this, for those of you who are listeners of my podcast on a regular basis, this seems like a riff on things you've heard before, but the more women and children that you maim and kill and send elsewhere and take away from their fathers and husbands and brothers, the more you steal the resolve and increase the ranks of resistance forces across the entire country. To quote Grau and Jalili, quote, in many respects, the tactics of the Anglo-Afghan Wars, 1839, 1919 where innovation was not required, the Mujahideen stayed with the tried and true. Thus, the basic Mujahideen ambush and pursuit were little changed from the last century. Whereas their actions against an air assault or a fortified security post were quickly developed out of necessity. This involved, of course, technology. The RPG anti-tank grenade launcher was a Mujahideen weapon of choice. And those of you who listened to my book review of Mogadishu and Operation Gothic Serpent, you see that there's nothing new under the sun when it comes to the RPG-7. Soviets and DRA tried to stay at least 300 meters away from the Bujahadeen out of Kalashnikov and RPG-7 range. Now, what didn't help the Soviets is being Soviets and being totalitarians and having that sort of institutional mindset that there must be a head to be lopped off or a central brain to be disposed of, that didn't work in this case. Again, to quote Jalili and Grau, quote, the, the Mujahideen were nominally divided into seven main factions, but the disunity was much greater. There were factions within factions. Old disputes and disagreements were not always put aside. For the duration of the war, there were frequent armed clashes between Mujahideen of different factions. The reputation of certain factions was that they were more interested in fighting other Mujahideen than Soviets. Still, the ISI, Pakistani Intelligence Agency, struggled to coordinate the actions of the various factions into some comprehensive plan. In some combat zones, such as Kandahar, the Mujahideen of different factions cooperated readily despite the politics of their factions. On the tactical level, the Mujahideen were prepared for a long war. Their goal was to hit, survive, and fight again. Thus, the Mujahideen could not exploit success. After a victory, they went home. Group leaders, let alone loose coalitions, could not force together for long after a fight. 
As was earlier noted by the British fighting the hill tribes, the mountain warriors could not stay together in victory or defeat. Thus, tactical victory could not be converted into operational gain. End of quote. And of course, we all know that operational gain was always something that wasn't coordinated very well among the Mujahideen who were fighting the Soviet occupation that entire time. They were playing a long game, they were playing a waiting game, and they were playing a patience game in which they were going to wait out and kill as many as they could so that through killing and maiming occupying soldiers, eventually they would create such an imperial exhaustion for the Russians that they would have to leave. Now, one can pose the question, In 1988, when the Geneva Peace Accord was signed, and then they were given approximately 12 months minus to leave the country, during that time, there was no real concomitant reduction in forces that were employed against the the Mujahideen and the countryside. So it was a waiting game, but it was a waiting game that, in this case, the Afghans would win, because not only were the Russians losing in Afghanistan, But from the 1980s onward, there was a huge, almost existential exhaustion on the part of the Soviet system where it was on its deathbed. All the indicators were were reading that there was a low ebb and the entire country could fall apart and flatline at any time. That coincidence, we don't know whether it's correlative or causative, to the Soviet loss in Afghanistan. But one can certainly come to the conclusion that the butterfly effect or the cavalcade of calamities that was what was happening in the Russian political spheres and their economy imploding and the fact that the entire Soviet experiment was on life support and would eventually flatline, that may have been one of the factors that in 1988 and 1989 forced the Russians out. I just got finished reading Mark Bowden's Way 1968 about the Tet Offensive in Vietnam. And there are many savvy observers and historians who look back and say that it was that very time in 1968 in which the U.S. lost the conflict in Vietnam. Much as I have alluded to David Stahel's works on the German operation of Barbarossa and losing the entire conflict as a result of the summer campaign in 1941 against Russia, in which Germany was a dead man walking, taking four years to finally assume room temperature. I wanted to quote from Afghansi about this very thing. Quote, for the Afghans, of course, it was not a small war at all. For the Mujahideen, it was a battle for national dignity and national liberation in which they were prepared to fight literally to the death. The casualty figures we have are more or less inaccurate guesses, often put into circulation for propaganda reasons only, but probably somewhere between 600,000 and 1.5 million Afghans were killed in the Soviet war. Millions more were driven from their home to seek refuge in Pakistan and Iran. As much as I've heard, a third of the population would find themselves there. Quote, the complex relationships which govern the Afghan way of life was overturned almost beyond repair, but the people of Afghanistan, like the people of Vietnam, had one irreducible advantage over the invader. They were going to stay, while the foreigner would eventually leave. As the saying goes, the foreigners had the watches, but the locals had the time. Russians and Americans drew the illuminating comparison with the American war in Vietnam, both during the Soviet war in Afghanistan and afterwards. 
The Cold War conditioned the decisions of both governments. Both went to war in a dubious interpretation of inter international law in the belief that they were defending their country's vital interest. Their immediate aims were similar, to protect a client and to deny a strategic territory to the other. Both had more grandiose aims to build in a distant country a political, social, and economic system similar to their own. Neither understood what they were getting into. Both thought that they would be able to shore up their local ally, the PDPA government in Kabul and the South Vietnamese government in Saigon, so that they could hand over responsibility for the security of the country and then leave. Both believed that their modern military machine could prevail without too much difficulty over the ragtag guerrilla force which faced them. We all know how this ends. And I'll leave you with this final quote, which I think is quite good from Afghansi. Quote, not long after the Russian veterans began to return as tourists to the places where they had fought two decades earlier, this would be 2009, to accommodate them, the enterprising Sergei Zharov set up his own guidebook on the web, The Russians Are Back, advising his countrymen on transport, visas, places to visit, and places to avoid. Igor Yamshikov went with a friend to Kabul in 2006 and then drove along the road to Jalalabad, filming the guard post, which they had served in 1981-1982, and posting the results on YouTube. Andrei Kutsanov and two comrades from the 345th Guards Independent Parachute Assault Regiment also visited Kabul in 2006. They hired a cab for $100, drove on from Bagram to the Salong Pass, and put up a memorial stone there. When they got home, they too posted their stories on the Internet. In the spring of 2009, Dmitry Fedorov, a former senior sergeant with the 860th Independent Motor Rifle Regiment, returned to Afghanistan through Ash and Ishkamen, and along the mountain roads of Barakshan to Barak to Faisabad, the same route that the regiment had taken when it entered Afghanistan nearly 30 years earlier. Much had changed in the meanwhile. The tracks along which the regiment had struggled for so long, with so much difficulty, had been replaced with decent roads. The town of Faisabad had nearly tripled in size and now boasted a proper hotel, which belonged to the former Mujahideen commander, Basir. A suburb now bordered the two or three miles which had separated the towns and the regiment's base. The base itself was unrecognizable. The barren terrain where the soldiers had vainly attempted to sow trees was now a flourishing oasis with gardens and houses surrounded by Lebanese cedars. Fedorov and his colleagues talked to those who had fought against them. To the men who had been on the same side, men from Kad and the Tsardoy, they handed out certificates marking the 20th anniversary of the Soviet withdrawal. One thing had not changed, said Fedorov. The region was no more under the control of the central government than it had been during the Soviet time. In and around Faisabad, Basir and the other local potentates were in charge, as they had always been. Because Kabul, I would remind all of you, doesn't run anything outside of its city environs. Now, one thing that I like to draw attention to, of course, is that we examine the Soviet experience in Afghanistan. And, and throughout the totality of my modest podcast series, I've illustrated to you again and again the arrogant hubristic and almost narcissistic insistence on the part of the West, in this case, the East being Russia, of going into these countries, parking their deep state death stars 
above said countries and making Western assumptions about third world and developing countries that not only don't apply, but the people who live there don't have a clue what you're trying to make them out to be because they're not the thing that you think they are. Again, I would urge all of you to know it's not worth the sadness, the maiming, the killing of U.S. soldiers, allied soldiers, and everybody in the country that happens, or a complex of countries, that happen to be invaded during that time, that for the most part, it's not going to end well. Because historically speaking, there are very few antecedents that point to success. Thanks for listening. This is Bill. This is Chasing Ghosts in a Regular Warfare podcast. You can get in touch with me at cgpodcast at pm.me. That is cgpodcast at pm.me. This is Bill, out.